The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Are repercussions about to hit California agriculture due to President Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum from China? Oh yes, and they've already begun. We've got the details. The USDA has released its 10-year agricultural production outlook forecast, and it's not pretty. Roof rats, they're not just for your attic anymore. These hungry rodents have moved into California's orchards. But there are some control strategies. We get that information from a University of California farm advisor. All that, a recap of Ag Day at the state capitol. And there's some good news, too. It's all on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Is China about to add a 15% tariff to California's agricultural goods? The move by China is said to be in retaliation of U.S. trade actions that seek to place tariffs on steel and aluminum. The Western Farm Press reports that these actions by China are in the proposal stage, but could take place immediately or in a month or possibly not at all. Groups that represent almonds, citrus, and pistachios are watching this with interest, as all groups could be impacted by the potential of new 15% tariffs on their exports to China. In the 2016-2017 marketing year, the U.S. exported over 69 million pounds of open in-shell pistachios to China. Besides pistachios, there are over 100 different U.S. food commodities China could assess tariffs on, and that includes almonds, walnuts, dates, figs, avocados, various citrus, grapes, watermelon, apples, peaches, plums, strawberries, cherries, prunes, apricots, and wine. And according to the Wine Institute, the value of U.S. wine exports to China and Hong Kong have increased 450% in the past decade. In 2017 alone, the country sold $197 million worth of wine to China. California wine represents 97% of all American wines sold abroad. Other California commodities that export a hefty amount to China, 23% of all California cherries go to China, 10% of lemons, and 9% of raisins. And there's another repercussion from President Trump's announced 25% tariff on steel imports and 10% tariff on aluminum imports. The Capitol Press is reporting that agricultural steel users are already seeing higher prices due to those import tariffs on steel. Coil, tubing, and pipe, most of which are imported, are increasing the most. Price increases will be seen on steel fence posts, barbed wire, components of tree fruit packing lines, anything made out of steel. For example, steel that was $40 per hundredweight a month ago is now in the mid $50 range. With the current back and forth between the U.S. and China in regards to tariffs, trade challenges, and potential economic retaliation, when it comes to the ag sector and potential impacts, American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duval perhaps described it best. My dad said, son, if you're going to be in agriculture, put your seatbelt on, snug it up tight because it is a rough, rough roller coaster ride. And I think we're in a rough, rough roller coaster ride. We better pull it up tight. With Agriculture Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney adding, And in the case of China, I'm suggesting shoulder straps with extra buckles. And while the focus on China, making headlines, has been on steel and aluminum and intellectual properties, National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson explains why the Trump administration is focusing on China from a big picture perspective. That's where the enormity of the trade deficit is, and that's a country that doesn't behave in a market economy fashion like the whole WTO is designed to operate on. 
That includes from the perspective of U.S. ag trade. As a chief ag negotiator for the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, Greg Dowd points to as an example. 2010 was the last time China reported their supports to the WTO. Price supports for Chinese farmers, that is. Dowd says yes, while there is right concern about potential Chinese retaliatory tariffs on U.S. ag goods from tree fruits and nuts to soybeans and corn, action needs to be and is being taken to address Chinese foreign policy and its impacts to the U.S. and global ag economy at the World Trade Organization. One example? We are challenging China's market price support for rice, wheat, and corn. Our estimates are that China has exceeded its WTO support limits in these commodities by somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion. The chief ag negotiator says this support, along with China's tariff rate quotas on wheat, rice and corn, has had significant impacts on global stocks of these commodities and in turn effects on U.S. export and market opportunities. This oversupply caused by non-economic production not only closes the Chinese market to American wheat and corn, but it also saturates other markets that harm our livelihood here at home as well as depressed commodity prices for farmers worldwide. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, the weather certainly turned on a dime. March came in like a veritable lion and stuck around for quite a while, then roamed away, and before you know it, the lambs came in. Brad Rippey is a meteorologist with the United States Department of Agriculture. He takes a look at the upcoming weather for the nation. This takes us into April from the 3rd through the 9th does look like that spring will be further delayed in many areas east of the Rockies, particularly across the northern plains and upper Midwest. At the same time, uh, warmth finally returns to California, the Great Basin and the Southwest. And we do expect warm weather along the immediate Gulf Coast. In terms of precipitation patterns from April 3rd through the 9th, the vast majority of the country expecting wet conditions near to above normal precipitation nationwide, except in California and the desert southwest and portions of the southern high plains. The National Weather Service concurs with Rippy. Temperatures will be above normal for the coming week. However, there may be a change in the weather by next weekend. Widespread rain and mountain snow are possible for Northern California. March storms have more than doubled the water content of the Sierra Nevada snowpack, although levels remain far below average. Electronic sensor readings show the snow at 58% of average, up from only 23% back on March 1st. And during that same period, the water content of the snow has gone from an average of 6 inches up to 16 inches. And most reservoirs remain at or near their average storage levels, thanks to all the 2017 rains. And now, it's quiz time, yes, and since this time of year is also egg time with kids decorating eggs, all of the holiday baking hour quiz question concerns the term egghead, a term referring to a very brainy intellectual type person, which I am. Of course, our contestant here, Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagham. So here's your question, what's the origin of that term egghead? Okay, time's up. <laughs> Your answer, the origin of the term egghead. I really, you know, that's an interesting question, I don't know. That's right. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure. Okay, one more question now. How many eggs does the average hen in a commercial U.S. flock lay in a month's time? Stick around to the end for the answer. Meanwhile, egg producers, wholesalers, in the weeks before Easter and Passover, you usually get a little spike up in wholesale egg prices. This year we are looking at a very strong 
spike. Bigger than anybody expected, uh, for that matter. Shale Shagam says egg production so far this year is running half a percent higher than the same time last year. Normally, bigger supplies bring lower prices, but instead, at wholesale here uh, recently? Uh, they're running about $2.27 a dozen, compared to about $0.94 cents a dozen last year. Whoa, what's going on here? Shale has one theory. Easter's coming a couple weeks earlier this year, so you've kind of pushed that normal demand period forward somewhat. More demand from supermarkets and such compressed over a shorter time, Maybe that is why wholesale prices are two twenty-seven a dozen. As you heard, Shale said production of table eggs so far this year is running half a percent higher than a year ago, but USDA is projecting a 2% increase for all of 2018. So why is production now running only half a percent higher? Well, Shale says in the egg business, sometimes in order to expand, you have to contract. Here's what he means. Uh, in, in order to expand production... You would tend to bring on young chickens. You would tend to keep some of your older chickens. Both of those are probably not going to be at their optimal rate of lay. And to some extent, that could be providing a little bit of a constraint on the production of eggs. As those hens mature and you call your older, less productive hens, then you would expect to see that number of eggs per hen increase. Ah, which brings us back to our quiz question. We'll get Clara Cluck here to sing for us now. Go! The question is, how many eggs does an average commercial laying hen produce in a typical month? We're going to take this past January. Shale, what is the answer? 78.4 eggs. Whoa, we have some very busy hens out there. Take us out, Clara. And Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Well, they've had an off-season marked by wildfires, mudslides, and freezes in some areas, but California's avocado growers still expect a large crop this season. The California Avocado Commission estimates the crop at 375 million pounds. That's up from 215 million a year ago. Farmers say they've started their avocado harvest by size picking. That's harvesting the larger avocados and leaving the smaller fruit on the tree to continue to grow. Farmers in Southern California are still assessing damage from the Thomas Fire, a massive wildfire that affected Ventura and Santa Barbara counties back last December. It burned approximately 281,000 acres, becoming the largest wildfire in modern California history. The Thomas Fire swept into an avocado grove Ed McFadden manages in the hills above Fillmore in Ventura County on December 14th. Now that we're in spring, McFadden took a look at the fire-damaged trees, assessing which may survive and which may need to be replaced. He told the California Farm Bureau Federation what he found. So on the night the fire came through, uh, it came, it swept through this barranca and we didn't have a lot of a lot of leaf litter to burn here but superheated air swept up the slope and scorched these trees here. And so what we're doing now is we're waiting, we're waiting to see how the trees are going to recover. And you can see this tree is, is got, has got some nice suckers coming up here just starting to sprout here and some around the base here so what we're hoping we can do with this tree is cut maybe cut back down staghorn it we call it cut back down to a basic scaffolding uh, as we see where the damage is and and we can regrow the tree pretty well in a few years so we'll have to look at each individual trees we have we have other trees that are not suckering so much here some of the ones around the edges that are probably dead and uh, will have to be replaced. 
So as spring progresses, we can see what happens and, and then we'll decide how it's going to be pruned and if we have to put in new trees and just how we're going to recover here. Forecasting the future is risky business at best. Examples, 1955, Alex Lewitt, president of his own vacuum cleaner company, predicted... Nuclear power vacuum cleaners will be a reality in 10 years. 1956, the UK's royal astronomer says... Space travel is utter bilge. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 1955 again. This time it's the editorial department of the entertainment publication Variety saying, Rock and roll will be gone by June. Well, they didn't say June of what century. And now, coming up, we wade into dangerous waters ourselves as we talk to the analyst who has put together projections for farms, food prices, and more for the next 10 years. On this edition of Agriculture USA, I'm Gary Crawford. Let's go back to ancient Greek mythology to a Trojan princess, Cassandra, who, for some transgression or other, was cursed by the gods. Given the gift of being able to accurately foretell the future, the curse, though, that no one would ever believe her, not even when she told the Trojans, don't let the big wooden horse into the gates of Troy, it's loaded with Greek soldiers, and it could lead to the destruction of the city, no one would listen. Result, the destruction of Troy. Which didn't sound like that, but anyway... Fast forward to the present. People do pay attention, though, when each year Agriculture Department analyst David Stallings and his fellow analysts make their long-term forecasts about what's going to happen in the world of agriculture and farming. We take what we know now and we ask what the world will look like 10 years from now. Those projections may not always end up being right, but people do pay attention to them. The new edition of the annual 10-year forecast is just out. Now, you may realize that our nation's farmers, the people who supply us with our food, need to sell their products for more than it costs to produce them, or else they're in trouble. So are we. And prices for almost every raw farm product have collapsed since 2014, and they're very low. That's one reason grocery store food prices have dropped year to year for the last couple of years. So, you farmers who are listening, you won't like to hear this, and we Consumers then should have a little empathy for farmers because in the new forecasts, ag department analysts are projecting that from now through 2027, they're looking for crop prices to be pretty close to what they are now. Ooh, ouch. Meanwhile, though, making things worse... We do have farm production expenses increasing through the remainder of the projection period as crude oil prices interest rates and inflation rise. Those farm production expenses projected to go up 9%, which puts many farmers in that dreaded <laughs> cost price squeeze, squeezing the profits right out the door. Now, David Stallings has net cash income for farmers in 2027, 12.5% lower than the cash income is right now. Now, I don't know what I'd do if my net cash income went down that much and if I was already selling my products for less than it cost me to produce them. But farmers have been adjusting all along here to these low prices, reducing expenses any way possible, as Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue has said about farmers many times. They're the most resilient people I've ever seen. And so far, there hasn't been any major wave of farm foreclosures and that sort of thing. But if the 10-year projections of David Stallings and his team turn out to be correct, there could be some uh, belt-tightening times ahead. We say if the projections are correct. Now, as you heard before... We ask what the world will look like 
10 years from now. Barring huge and unpredictable weather or economic upheavals and assuming no change to government policy. So how accurate then can these 10-year projections be? Uh, for that, we have to go back, back into the future. So we went back and looked at the report issued in 2008, which gave the future forecast for 2017. When it came to projecting prices for crops, the analysts came very close to what actually happened. But they were way off on the value of our sales of food and farm products overseas. Now, these exports are a big deal for some farm products. Half of what's produced is sold to other countries, and that helps keep farm product prices supported. So analysts 10 years ago had 2017 ag exports worth about $103 billion. Actually, it turned out to be well over $140 billion. So, David, now you've worked on this report for 26 years. How much longer will you be doing this? Uh, until we get it right. Uh, <laughs> so next year, we will once again go back into the future. Yes, meanwhile, the present edition of Agriculture USA is about to become the past edition. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Ag Day was recently held on the west steps of the state capitol on a rainy work day, attracting a really big crowd, including those who work inside the state capitol, such as Representative Heath Flora of the 12th Assembly District. He talks about why 10th and L Streets in Sacramento is the perfect place to hold Ag Day. So one of the biggest reasons Ag Day is so important in the state of California is we get our colleagues out of Sacramento, out of the building that we're so privileged to serve in, bring them out and let our community show them what we do as an ag community, how progressive we have been. Been for a long time as a guy that's grown up in the Central Valley in the family of agriculture. Some of the best environmentalists you'll ever meet are farmers. And it's time that we get our story out there and show them what we do as an ag community and how we have sustainable growth and look forward to the future. There were over 42 exhibitors at this year's Ag Day. Among the exhibitors were the Almond Board of California, California's Egg Farmers, California Cattlemen's Association, the Dried Plum Board, the Farm Bureau Federation, the Milk Advisory Board, the State Beekeepers Association, and of course, John Deere, because everybody likes staring at tractors the size of a small house. What might Whole Foods' acquisition by Amazon look like to the meat industry and consumers? Jeanette Barnard of Decision Next told an audience at this year's USDA Ag Outlook Forum that where grocers and meat distributors run sales based on traditional norms. So if you're a sales rep at a packer and you're trying to decide what promotion am I going to run on what item, you're probably going to look at, well, what promotion did I run 52 weeks ago? Because that's the one I typically run. Amazon's business model is data-driven and forward-thinking, which could help Whole Foods transform from buying meat from small and niche suppliers at based on consumer demand. Whole Foods is now going to need to be sourcing from some more mainstream packers. So when that happens, Amazon, Whole Foods is going to have greater expectations of those suppliers. Those suppliers are going to have to adapt to a company that's making data-driven decisions that doesn't just want to take five truckloads of meat this week because we always take five truckloads of meat and in turn allow mainstream meat suppliers to incorporate Amazon's model when dealing with other customers. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. If any of you have been listening to the garden shows I host, either Get Growing here on KSTE or the KFBK Garden Show, you know that a lot of homeowners are getting concerned about who's eating my citrus. And it's not just eating the fruit, it's just eating the rinds, which is very unusual. 
And some of the culprits being traced back to include roof rats. Well, guess what? Roof rats are now in orchards. They're in pistachio and other nut orchards. They're burrowing and nesting in the ground, chewing on irrigation lines, causing extensive damage, and a lot more. We're talking with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. And Rachel, why aren't these roof rats in in roofs? What are they doing in the field? How did they get there? Good. That's a good question. And uh, and so roof rats just uh, they just live everywhere. They're very opportunistic, and they when they find a food resource, they'll just go for it. So uh, this year in particular has been a, a really a, a, a big year. It's the year of the rat, <laughs> certainly. And uh, and and all of these rodents do have cyclical populations, and so. Some years we just do get outbreaks of voles or we get outbreaks of uh, roof rats and, and other rodents. And I think what happened is last year was such a wet winter and we had tons of weeds that were growing everywhere, producing a lot of seeds and just provided ideal food resources for that roof rat. And, uh, and as a result, these uh, the populations just rapidly uh, built up. Uh, I mean, these these roof rats, you know, each each female can have three to five litters per year and five to eight young. And and so that could be like 40 offspring per rat. And so you can just see that how quickly a couple of rats can build up to hundreds in, in a short time. Well, you've been the uh, pest detective on this one. So talk a little bit how you came to the conclusion it was roof rats, because I would imagine that the first suspect would be uh, rodents or squirrels. Right. I know. That's what I thought, too. So when I got a call to look at a pistachio orchard, I just thought for sure it's going to be ground squirrels because that's usually what it is. And uh, went out there and uh, and just didn't see any ground squirrels. OK, so ground squirrels are diurnal, so they're active during the day and uh, just didn't see any. And when I looked at these holes in the ground, uh, they were also uh, way too small for a uh, for a ground squirrel. So ground squirrel holes will be about four inches or more in diameter. And then you usually see a squirrel somewhere around it, but there is no squirrel. And these holes were about two to three inches in diameter with uh, with a little bit of, you know, piles of nuts around it. And uh, and so I knew that it could not have been a uh, deer mice or voles because it was it was too big for that. Uh, the deer mice and voles tend to be one to two inches in diameter, and these were three, and ground squirrels are four. So I just was really scratching my head, going, "What on earth is this?" Because, you know, because uh, it just was very confusing, because there was just somewhere in between. And uh, so I thought about rats, um, but uh, but I just didn't know what a roof rat uh, would would be doing underground, burrowing underground. And uh, and so, uh, uh, but did uh, uh, talk to a, a colleague, and and she assured me that uh, that roof rats in the country can burrow underground and nest underground. So they they're above ground and nest ground, and of course nocturnal at night. So that's why I didn't see any. For people who grew up on Bugs Bunny cartoons, they may have thought uh, rabbits uh, might have been the culprit in this situation, but actually rabbits don't dig burrows, do they? No, they don't. So that was the question is we actually put out a game camera as well because we thought, well, you know, maybe maybe we could pick something up. But all we picked up were uh, were rabbits and birds. I mean, these roof rats, rats are just sneaky. They're really smart and they, they hide. And uh, basically, if you don't see anything but you see the damage then suspect uh, rats 
But rabbits, like you know, jackrabbits and cottontails, you know, they don't they don't dig and burrow uh, underground. I mean, they'll they'll they may just uh, sort of like create a little nest, like in thatch and such, but they're not digging and burrowing underground. And then you have the case of citrus trees, and I understand in some situations the roof rats are nesting in the citrus trees, which must be quite a surprise to anybody out there picking fruit. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awful to reach in and have a rat jump out at you? Um, so, yeah, so actually, uh, so roof rats, they, they, they're opportunistic, and, uh, and if you have cover year-round, you know, like a, an orange tree, then that can form just this perfect protection for the uh, roof rats during the wintertime. Unlike something like a pistachio orchard or, or, or almonds where you, the leaves drop in the wintertime and so they don't have any cover. And that's probably why then they'll go underground and burrow and nest underground. But in citrus trees, they, they will nest in, in the uh, tree itself. And, uh, and, and what we also see is that uh, not only do they, you know, feed on the fruit, and and typically you'll just find like sometimes the in, the whole and then the entire inside of the fruit is eaten out, and you're just left with a shell. And same with uh, with pomegranates, has been damaged by rats and pomegranates. But the worry worrisome thing about rats in the uh, in like orange trees is what what they're doing is they're actually stripping the bark off of limbs of trees. And so, so there's you know a sweetness to that. Um, basically, the bark uh, has the the sugar conducting part of the uh, of the tree, and so uh, so the rats are feeding on that. But when they strip it, they're they're girdling the tree, and uh, and and so you can still have you know water conducting up and down. But but when you take off the bark, that that t- it just basically girdles the tree, and so uh, a lot of the, uh, the the trees that rats are nesting and feeding in then have branches that are that are dying back and and that's a problem because then you lose production for years have you seen any evidence in a mixed planting situation of the roof rats basically following the crops when they're done with citrus they'll move to the next Mm -hmm. crop that's ripening uh, Mm -hmm. be it a nut crop or another fruit crop certainly they can move around in in fields and we've seen that i i see that more in something like an alfalfa field where if you disc the field then the uh, the rodents will just of course they're going to move out so you're going to have gophers and voles that are just you know just like um dispersing everywhere and uh, and and i think that uh, that you have two things that you probably have Certainly, some uh, natural mortality when the food resource declines, then uh, then the rat population will will go down. But I definitely think that they're gonna they're moving too. I have a colleague that told me he caught like something like in in uh, woodland that he caught something like I don't know like 50 rats so far in the last six months in his uh, in his backyard, and I'm like, lordy, that's a lot. And uh, so I think they do disperse, and uh, and uh, once the uh, food is gone, then they'll move somewhere else. University of California Ag and Natural Resources Department uh, put out a publication about four years ago called Mm -hmm. Managing Roof Rats and Deer Mice in Nut and Mm -hmm. Fruit Orchards. What what is the difference between a roof rat and a deer mouse? So the roof rat is big and uh, much bigger than a uh, than than a mouse. And uh, um, but they uh, they both can do damage in orchards. So, again, the roof rat, the hole will be about three inches. Whereas the deer mouse, a much smaller, you know, like a house mouse, and uh, and the holes will be one to two inches in the ground, and but they both actually can cause damage. The roof rats really do move up and down trees and uh, and are feeding, you know, on the tree and on the fruit, 
and uh, and then in the ground they're just burrowing underground, not necessarily uh, causing any damage underground. But the uh, the ho- the uh, deer mice they're everywhere too, and they can actually scramble up and down trees and and also feed on uh, like nuts on almonds, both in the trees and also on the ground. So that kind of surprised me that uh, you know that that actually deer mice can go up and down trees, and I'm always surprised by the number of you know wildlife that does you know move around and go and go you know up and down on on trees as well. Like sometimes I see lizards in trees, and I'm like, what are you doing up there? So yeah, so wildlife actually the the, the mice and rodents and rats um, can uh, can move around and and certainly cause damage to uh, to, to tree crops. And it's rather expensive. I know there was a study done, I think, back in the year 2000 about the cost per acre that deer mice can do, and they pegged it at over $20 per mm-hmm. acre to almond orchards in mm-hmm. Fresno County due to deer mice damage. Right. So they can certainly be damaging. You know, the, the really the critical issue here is that uh, is in the, what I really wanted to, to let people know about is, is how to identify uh, these, these different rodents out in, in our crops so that we can get a jump on them um, early and, and control them early before outbreaks occur. So that was my uh, my intent on uh, putting out a, a news alert on these on the rats was just to say, hey, this is what the damage looks like. Uh, recognize it early. Um, if you can, just trap you know use snap traps to uh, to catch those uh, those rodents and keep keep them out. Keep those populations low. Because once you get a massive infestation in there, then you can really get a lot of damage and then control becomes incredibly challenging. So so this is just a, uh, you know, really a heads up that rodents are out there and and just keep an eye on them and know how to look for their for the signs of their activity and then control them early on to uh, to prevent damage. And and I always suggest also, you know, like uh, barn owl boxes are good to put up for, for helping to control go- uh, gophers and barn owls will also feed on rats. So they can they can take a lot of rodents and, and help us out uh, naturally. So, so that's one suggestion is to put up a barn owl box and and use your uh, use your snap traps and just monitor and know what's out there. Another good reason for proper identification, roof rat versus deer mouse, is that they are both susceptible to different rodenticides. You need to use the proper rodenticide for each species. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So and and proper placement too. And you know, I'd never like to recommend rodenticides, and it's really that last resort. And you know, when you have like you know a population that you just can't control, and you're getting significant damage to your orchard, like they're stripping bark off your off your uh, uh, citrus trees. So the whole idea is really recognize that damage, get in there early, so that you don't have to d- depend on any rodenticides because those you know they're very toxic, they're highly restrictive. You can only use them at certain times of the year. Um, but for something like uh, like roof rats, you you can't uh, you can't bait on the ground. That doesn't work. You've got to use some uh, bait station in the trees. And uh, and actually, the bait stations, you know, are if you need to bait, that's the way to go because they're they're off you know up, up in the trees and and essentially not accessible to by uh, by a lot of our our wildlife. So, but that's only a last resort. And really, my whole interest is making sure people recognize the uh, the damage and uh, the signs of their activity and get in early for control with other other methods if possible. Well, let's talk about some less toxic uh, methods for mm-hmm. controlling mm-hmm. roof rats and deer mice. Mm-hmm. How effective is flooding, if at all? 
Oh, well, um, for, uh, for certainly for gophers and for ground squirrels, uh, like an alfalfa, I mean, it definitely helps to, uh, to suppress the rodents. And, and I just love when they're flooding alfalfa fields, flood irrigating in the summer. And then you get those flocks of birds that come in that, uh, that are just feeding on insects and rodents and such as they pop out of the holes. And so you can always see where the water is out in the field by the flocks of egrets and, um, and ibises and all kinds of birds that are, that are out there. So flooding does help. But now we've, you know, we've really shifted a lot towards, uh, um, towards uh, the uh, drip irrigation and uh, the subsurface drip. And, uh, and so there you do you do have rodent problems because there you don't you can't flood them out and and that's uh and that's why the uh that you have to they have to certainly get in there early and manage them and 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 certainly trapping works well and that brings up another added cost if you're fighting a rodent problem like uh, that is that drip irrigation tubing becomes a target of thirsty rodents right oh, yeah they do and in particular, like uh, sometimes after harvest, like a sunflower seed crop uh, for, you know, for that hybrid seed that you're producing, that, that after harvest and everything is so dry, you do get some cracks in the soil. And, uh, and then you have seed out there and you have, you know, voles and deer mice and house mice that, uh, that are incredibly opportunistic. And they just race out and they're feeding on that seed and they drop into the, into the holes, into the cracks and, uh, and feed on that, on that drip line. So, so and then they cause you know so uh, little uh, leaks that uh, that then have to be repaired. So so and that's costly you know actually uh, trying to uh, to fix all those leaks. So so it is a challenge and uh, and one of my colleagues is sort of looking at ways to uh, to to you know to to put a little bit of water in the line maybe after harvest just to seal up those cracks and uh, and 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 keep the rodents from dropping down and feeding on and nibbling on those lines because that. Fixing these rodent leaks and those drip lines is is expensive and time consuming. So you mentioned flooding as a possible control for certain rodent pests, mm-hmm. and you mentioned mm-hmm. snap traps for uh, roof rats mm-hmm. and deer mice. Are there any yeah. other less toxic alternatives? Well, so you do have you know you do have traps for uh, for gophers as well, and uh, and there's you know there's a lot of uh, um, work being done on uh, on gopher control in particular and uh, ground squirrel control, and they have. You know these different units that uh, that you you know like carbon dioxide or something you know just that that goes down the hole and 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 takes care of these uh, these rodents. So so there there's um there are uh, are options for uh, for many of our our rodent pests and uh, and some of these are are registered uh, for for organic control as well. So um so there's there's um. I wish there were more options. Some people uh, talk about like cats and releasing cats. My my concern about cats certainly is that they eat everything. So while they may eat some rodents, they're going to eat birds and lizards and and uh, you know any any uh, like snakes or anything out there as well. So so that concerns me uh, that uh, that if people are promoting cats, you know they they're not uh, they're not specific on the uh, on, on rodents. So so I wouldn't go that route. But but certainly. Um, Certainly, the traps and um, and uh, some people actually like you know do you can actually shoot the uh, ground squirrels. Some people do that, and some people use barriers. You know, they'll like put a fence down and bury it so that uh, uh, and put it like a foot above ground so they uh, so gophers and such can't uh, can't go in. You know, get in. 
Um, certainly for uh, for some habitat plantings or plants, they'll put like you know something around the root so that uh, so it protects it more from the uh, from rodents. You've got tree tubes. Uh, so there's there's uh, multiple ways of uh, of trying to uh, to control the uh, rodents. So when it comes to roof rats, though, there are limited options if you want to try to avoid rodenticides. Right, right. But except for because you know the the big thing is is with roof rats and rats in general is they are smart. They're very clever. They're shy of anything new, and uh, they're very wary. Um, so so the roof rats are challenging. And uh, um, so essentially, you know, the best thing for certainly for homeowners, I would say, is your is your snap traps and then and try that uh, for for low, maybe a few local infestations on a farm. But uh, but if you've got an outbreak and you're getting damaged, then you need to need to go the bait stations uh, up and up in the trees for uh, for managing the rodents. But, you know, that said, you've really got to be careful and know know when you can use it and, and uh, because it, uh, it you can't use it in in season for controlling the rodents. So that's something to, to really watch for. But on the farm where it's your livelihood, you're going to mm-hmm. do what you have to do. Well, you do. And uh, and because especially for trees, because you can't you can't lose a tree. I mean, if you've invested, you know, 10 years into getting it up and going, you don't want to lose it. So so that's why it is critical to, to just watch and just to monitor. And sometimes you can take care of the problem by by trapping. But if you have a massive outbreak, then you'd need to go to uh, the next step is is the is the bait stations. But but in, you know, in the in and before it gets to that level, you know, that, that it's, it is really important to think about about our, our wildlife and the uh, and the natural control that uh, that you can get out there by. Uh, by birds uh, and raptors like uh, like the uh, you know, the hawks and also the uh, the barn owls and uh, and to try to uh, do the local trapping to, uh, to to keep those rats under control. But some years, like this year, it's just one of the worst outbreaks of rats that we've had in you know in a long time in many many years. And uh, and and so it's um, in in years like this where you do see a lot of damage then you do need to be proactive and and protect your your trees and if you want more information about barn owls for example and barn owl mm-hmm. houses university of california has some great resources at the uc mm-hmm. page and check that out also managing roof rats and deer mice in nut and fruit orchards that's available as well from uc so uh, check those out online as well well it's great. the year of the rat <sighs> <laughs> it certainly is this year, and there's always the year of something. And uh, last year, it was the year of the vole. I had so many voles out here in the country. It was unbelievable. And now now we've moved on, and it's the year of the rat. Well, hopefully next year won't be grasshoppers. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, I haven't seen those, and just knock on wood that, uh, that it's going to be a quiet year. All right. Rachel Long, <laughs> UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Well, you're most welcome. Perhaps you want to start a honeybee colony as a hobby, or to produce honey for sale, or if you own an orchard or pasture, to pollinate your trees, plants, and crops. How do you go about it? North Carolina State University's David Tarpey says it starts with producers constructing their own honeybee boxes. And whether they construct their own box from scratch or purchase a completely constructed box, producers should purchase building supplies from a reputable bee seller. They build their equipment, and all they need are the bees to be put into the box. Starter honeybee colonies can be purchased and either mailed or shipped to the soon-to-be beekeeper. So how should the bees be installed in their new hive? Tarpey says first, 
feed bees with a sugar syrup spray prior to installation. When a colony is first put into a brand new hive, the very first thing that they have to do is build new wax comb so that the queen has a place to lay eggs and the workers have places to store food, honey, and pollen to get the colony up and running. The main energy source for building new wax comb is indeed nectar or sugar water. Potential beekeepers need protective equipment such as a veil and tools such as various hooks to lift and separate beehive levels and frames, a smoker, and a spray bottle with sugar syrup at the ready. Then remove three to four frames from the brood chamber. Take the package with worker bees and turn it upside down, shaking them into the chamber. As these packages are being introduced, it's very chaotic. They don't know that it's their new home, so these bees are flying all around, not in a defensive way, but just kind of in a confused state. Tarpy says the bees eventually settle down and migrate to the bottom board of the new hive, allowing the beekeeper to put frames back in place. Placement of the queen bee, still in its protective cage, occurs next. The workers are not used to her scent yet because she is often not related to them. They will still feed her through the screen on the cage, but they don't have access to her where they might think of her as a foreign queen and therefore kill her. However, a time-release cap made of white sugar candy allows worker bees to release the queen bee within two to three days' time by eating it. This also gives the workers enough time to become used to the queen's scent and accept her into the hive. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.